Welcome to the Academic CME Podcast. As always, this program is a top quality accredited CE activity. If you would like to receive credit for this or any other Academic CME Podcast, please click the link in the description below or go to academiccme.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to this continuing education program entitled Scientific Updates to Improve Outcomes in Patients with Alzheimer's Disease, Strategies to Care for Alzheimer's Patients During COVID-19. Today's topic is Alzheimer's Education for Patients and Caregivers, Strategies for Shared Decision-Making. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Biogen and is provided by Academic CME. Hi, my name is Dr. Richard Isaacson, I'm director of the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Weill Cornell Medicine and New York Presbyterian in New York City. I'm also an associate professor of neurology and assistant dean in the Office of Faculty. Today, I'm joined by two of my very close colleagues, Holly Herstov. She is a family nurse practitioner in the Alzheimer's Prevention Clinic at Weill Cornell Medicine in New York Presbyterian, and she's a clinical operations director at the Women's Brain Initiative at Weill Cornell. And my old friend and colleague, Juan Melendez. Juan is an associate specialist in old age psychiatry and the clinical lead of the Jersey Memory Assessment Service at the Poplars, Overdale Hospital in Jersey, the United Kingdom, the island of Jersey in the English Channel. So thank you from, for joining us from across the pond and thanks for joining us, uh, both of you today. Um, I think this topic is, is really important because um, you know, we're learning so much about um, how COVID-19 affects patients with dementia, maybe in a different way. For example, how patients with Alzheimer's disease may present differently um, when they have COVID-19 symptoms. We're also realizing how important, you know, even more, we, we know that a multidisciplinary care team um, is, is, is essential for managing patients with dementia and shared decision-making is key. But I think now so we're really, um, you know, dependent on our, our multidisciplinary team from social workers to nurses to nurse practitioners, physicians across a variety of specialties. And then of course now pulmonologists, um, critical care doctors, um, you know, cardiologists to manage all of the related um, sequelae from COVID-19 and we're all having to work together to provide optimal patient care. Um, Juan, maybe you could start and give some comments. Yeah, I mean, uh, you did mention briefly, uh, Richard, about the atypical presentation of the typical symptoms of uh, COVID uh, among patients with dementia. We know that patients with dementia uh, are a special group when it comes to mortality risk. And not because they are, in general terms, tends to be older, they, they tend to be frailer, or they have, they share more comorbidities. We know that even patients with dementia who are fitter and in the milder stage, they also have a greater uh, mortality rate. And uh, we, we, we know now there's been an interesting paper published by an uh, Italian group uh, uh, led by Bianchetti, where the classic symptoms of uh, COVID are not present in, in patients with uh, dementia. And the commonest uh, presentation among uh, patients is uh, delirium, but it's the hypoactive delirium. It's the type of delirium that often is missed because it's a delirium that doesn't really come with uh, agitation, restlessness. It's the, it's the type of delirium that often we see in the general hospital where the patient is quiet, is uh, just in bed, is not eating, is not drinking, and because it's not causing any hassle, it does not always get the attention from the treating for the medical and nursing team. So if we have somebody with dementia in a care home and the staff, they notice a change, that person becomes quieter, subdued, hypoactive, 
they should be thinking about the positive of COVID. The, the, the fever is, is, is not always present. The shortness of the breath is not always present. And the cough, I think the cough is only present in around 14, 14% of patients with uh, COVID and dementia. So we have to be quite vigilant. We have to be looking for that, uh, that, those type of uh, presentations and not wait for symptoms before we recommend PCR testing. You know, patients in, in, in care homes uh, um, may be asymptomatic and, uh, or have those atypical symptoms and still be uh, infected by COVID. So I think that is interesting for us as a clinician and also for any caregiver to, to be mindful that uh, positive of uh, atypical symptoms of COVID in, in, in dementia. That's that's very helpful, and I think you know for 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 listeners, um, it's important because um, you know uh, when we first heard about COVID, it was a respiratory illness, uh, and then it became a vascular and cardiovascular illness, and then it became a neurological illness, and now it affects everything probably through vascular mechanisms that we don't really even fully understand just yet. So um, we would, I guess, then now expect that such a you know it's like a chameleon. This 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 virus, it, it, it affects so many people in so many different ways. Um, so we, we should actually expect that patients with dementia may present in, in atypical ways. And, and I think practitioners need to, you know, be mindful of that. Um, Holly, you know, I, I wanted to touch on kind of the, one of the key parts of this topic, and that's the, the, the concept of shared decision-making. And, you know, shared decision-making, it's, it's really, you know, it's a key component of patient-centered care. It, it, it allows clinicians and patients to work together to make decisions, to, to select tests and treatment options and care plans. You know, you got to balance clinical evidence, balance, balance risk and expected outcomes. And, and we really, you know, as a team, as, a, as an entire team, you know, manage care or treatment options, explore them, and, and really come to a, a, a decision together. Um, you know, when it comes to managing patients, um, and, you know, when we have patients that, you know, are calling us and, and they have dementia and they have um, symptoms that we're not exactly sure uh, what's what exactly is going on? Um, it's it's tough because you know we have to do. Do we send them to their primary care? Do we send them to an emergency room? You know, um, how how do we manage this? Um, Holly, any any um, you know tips about how to um, communicate this? You know, um, you know all the different symptoms that COVID nineteen can cause. You know, from smell loss to GI symptoms. Um, any kind of gestalt about. Um, you know, the, the heterogeneity here and how to, how to risk stratify patients when talking to them through, for example, a video instead of in person. Yeah. Um, you know, I think initially we were checking in with our dementia patients more frequently um, and really giving them information on what symptoms to look for. Um, you know, when this first started, the symptoms were a bit different. You know, it was a respiratory illness, like you said. So over time, it's changed. Um, now that we know that delirium is one of those symptoms, and hypoactive delirium in particular is um, one of those symptoms, you know, that's something to um, relate to, to care providers and patient families as well, because um, that's super important because, you know, dementia patients are already a bit more fatigued. You know, we hear that a lot from our from our families. So um, I think that that's something super important to relate to them. Um, in terms of strategies, um, you know, going to the hospital versus calling it a PMD, that's tricky. I know our numbers are a little bit lower now. I think our cases in New York City are like less than 1%, um, which is amazing. But um, I think the, I read a paper, the amount of um, older people going to the hospital had decreased by like 42% or something crazy like that. So mm. 
just having that knowledge to share with your patients what symptoms to manage and what symptoms to watch for, I think. And, you know, having the um, multidisciplinary team on board with those symptoms as well. So the, the social workers, the nurses, the doctors, the physicians, the PAs, you know, just having everybody on the same team and communicating. I know we've communicated a lot more um, via phone and, and Zoom um, and talking about, you know, our patients more, more frequently than before, I think is important. Yeah, and I'm really glad you mentioned that because, you know, hypoactive delirium and delirium, um, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, and I'm not going to speculate on the exact mechanisms, but whether it's through, you know, low oxygenation or whether it's through a toxic metabolic infectious encephalopathy, you know, whatever the virus is doing to the brain, whether it's, you know, getting into the brain, whether it's causing, you know, peripheral things that, you know, cause whether it's, you know, whatever it is that's affecting the brain through whatever speculative mechanism. And honestly, probably different people with COVID are going to manifest different uh, cognitive symptoms, depending on if it gets through the CNS, if it's an inflammatory process, if the immune process is causing the problem rather than the virus, so a secondary effect cytokine storm. Um, but hypoactive delirium is something that um, has been very interesting. Um, you know, I've only seen that, I think, once uh, since this has happened. Um, but, you know, um, when someone is tired or sleeping more, um, they may just think, okay, they're tired or sleeping more. But that could be a premonitory symptom, um, you know, uh, of, of COVID. And that's something that could certainly drive health pro- care providers across specialties uh, to have someone seek um, more care. Um, Juan, have you, um, have you seen that much in, in your patients? Have you had um, patients with dementia um, get COVID-19? And, and how, how heterogeneous um, has it been? I, I'm being lucky, lucky enough. Uh, I've been lucky enough to not seeing uh, many of my patients developing COVID. I mean, we've been blessed in Jersey. We have uh, only, I think, it was uh, we, at the moment we have something like 14 active cases. 14 active cases, but in, in, in total, since the, the the beginning of the pandemic, we have just around 300 confirmed cases in total. So I've been quite lucky in that sense, um, but. Uh, I've been working, I was deployed to, to, to the crisis team and the home treatment team during the, the, for the last four months. And I, I, I was going to patients' houses with PPE, full PPE, to assess changing behavior. That was the main, the main reason for referral. The, the, the family will alert the social worker or will alert the nurse saying, my, my father, my, my spouse is not the same. Something has changed. And... Uh, we will be there and we will be screening, we will be taking blood sample, or we will be uh, taking a, a urine sample. Even we took our own uh, um, portable ECG, you know, we, 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 we were doing that sort of uh, uh, screening. Um, and if there was any evidence of infection, then we will be contacting the rapid response team, providing uh, the uh, daily input uh, for antibiotics. But it's always in the back of my mind, always being in the back of my mind as a psychiatrician. I've been called so many times during my career to go to the general hospital to, as part of the liaison service and, and see that person, that elderly person that is in bed who is so quiet. And the reason for calling me is that because it's not eating, it's not drinking. And, and often it's very difficult to, 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 to detect by, by, by member staff who are particularly busy in providing care for the other ones who are more agitated and who are uh, making noise, you know, those are the ones who are distracting the carers from, from, from paying attention to this group. So, yeah, I mean, as I say, it's, it's something for us to have in our differential diagnosis. When I, I think the key here will be, Richard and Holly, 
to get information from someone who knows the person well. Mm. If the family member say to you, my, my spouse is not normally like this. I know what my wife or what my husband is like because he's been having dementia for X number of years. I know what it's like. And this is not, this is not himself. This is not herself. That I think is key. That's what it has to really give you a high level of suspicion that there may be something acute uh, happening. Um, and which requires for that for the investigation. I think that's the key, getting the information from somebody who knows the person well. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, um, you know, understanding, you know, again, that Alzheimer's disease is a neuropsychiatric disease and can affect, you know, multiple different um, symptom complexes um, is really key. Um, and not just, you know, maybe shrugging off something as being, medical related or dementia related, um, but really, you know, knowing when to uh, decide on further evaluation and, uh, and, a, and a care plan uh, is, is, is the challenge, um, I think, that we have. Um, there was this paper um, in the European Journal of Neurology, um, and it looked at um, neuropsychiatric symptoms and quality of life, and this was in Spain, in, in Spanish patients um, with Alzheimer's disease, and, and it was interesting to me because they took about 40 patients with both mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's and uh, early mild Alzheimer's disease dementia. And they were part of this cognitive stimulation program. And, um, you know, Juan, maybe you can tell me a little bit about that. Um, it's, it's a very interesting study because they, they did it. They did a cognitive assessment before lockdown and then about five weeks after lockdown. And they found some interesting uh, findings. Uh, maybe you can tell yeah. us a little bit about that. I think the, the, the study was conducted uh, for five weeks. You were right, right, quite right during the, the initial period of lockdown in northeast of Spain. And, and uh, in patients with uh, mild cognitive impairment and, and early dementia. And they, they find, the findings were quite interesting. They found that uh, the, the commonest neuropsychiatric symptoms, uh, including agitation, apathy, apathy, which is again interesting, and apathy, delirium, hypoactive delirium, and uh, some arrogant behavioral symptoms. But also there was a report from patients and families that the, both of them had the perception of having lost quality of life and having lost confidence and the patient's perception was that they have cognitively declined. That was interesting. And only five weeks, that was only five weeks uh, uh, interval. Uh, I found that very, very, uh, very interesting, Richard. Uh, we, we've been talking now, we, we, this has been going on now for a good number of months. So uh, one only can imagine the, 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 uh, the impact that it's having uh, in, in patients and caregivers. But yeah, patients, caregivers, they have the subjective impression that they both deteriorated um, cognitively and functionally and agitation, apathy, and aberrant uh, symptoms. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's uh, very interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Holly, um, you know, kind of along those lines, you and I have had to make several decisions, um, you know, weekly about what we should suggest to a patient from an ethical and you know met best optimal medical care perspective on should the patient come to the office mm -hmm. or should we try to continue on telemedicine and you know from a shared decision making perspective um you know um i think our 
two, two weeks ago or whatever it was, there was uh, our first COVID exposure in the clinic. Uh, someone had a, a, you know, a sick family member that was positive and it was a, one of our a clinical secretaries and there was a research coordinator, I think that was exposed, like all you know, separate exposures within like a four day time period. And we like, called, um, I think all of our patients and we you know, moved several to telemedicine and um, some people still wanted to come in and I, I ended up um, meeting one at my house um, in the backyard um, in the morning at a, at a picnic table. And, and that was, that was okay. So that, that was, that was safer, I guess. We wore masks and we're six feet apart. Um, but I guess Holly, um, how have you um, thought about this, the shared decision-making aspect of when to bring a patient in to the clinic versus not, um, you know, these, these, you know, we talked about atypical symptoms. We talked about, um, you know, now, you know, you know, a study that actually came out that showed that lockdown impacts quality of life and cognition. And, and maybe if, if someone's not doing well, maybe it's, you know, maybe they really should come to clinic so we can do a, a more, more careful assessment. I know I've had a few patients back that, man, it's only been three, four, five months, but I mean, they've, I mean, they're different. They've aged in a different way. They're more sullen. Um, I had three patients in a row one day, I think a couple of weeks ago, and I, I like left with like a sick feeling in my stomach because I actually, like I had, I was a strong advocate for lockdowns because I thought it was the best thing for public health. And now I'm saying, wow, I have a few patients that um, really uh, got hurt from this in, in, in ways that I was not anticipating and they never had COVID. Um, Holly, how do you, um, you know, think about these, these tough decisions? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, first off, it's, it's been really helpful for me to meet with the team in the office to kind of devise a plan on how to bring the patients in safely, do the monitoring, the temperature checks, um, and I'll be on the same page with that. Secondly, in terms of what patients should come in, I think we really need to use our judgment there on how you know, how many comorbidities those patients have, um, because obviously they're more at risk. Um, so really like knowing your patient and, and knowing their clinical history, not just outside of the dementia, but you know, their other risk factors are vascular, metabolic, you know, all, pulmonary, all of those things. Um, I've definitely noticed in people that I've um, seen in the past that may have been a little bit more lively are now a little less so, which is really sad. So I, I've definitely noticed that as well. And I think I mentioned that to you about a couple of patients. And um, yeah. so that's, you know, the lockdown I think was necessary, but now it's just, you're seeing the effects of that and, and the, the effects on the mental health. And it's, it's pretty uh, sad. So. Yeah. Uh, Juan. Yeah. We, we, we now in Jersey, we have just reopened the outpatients clinic. We, we back to the new normality. We have to do a risk assessment of the building and comply with all the public health recommendations. So we have in terms of distancing, in terms of number of people per room, and all the questions that we need to ask patients prior to come to the, to the outpatients. When it comes to new assessments, uh, we, if the person has capacity to consent, we offer them the possibility to come to face-to-face -face clinic. Um, if the symptoms from the referral letter are complex, uh, then we, we give the option of going to do a home visit. We visit at home. All the follow-ups are done remotely by phone, unless there is a sudden change in presentation that do warrants uh, us to do a home visit. Mm -hmm. I have to say that patients are responding very well. They, 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 they prefer to come face-to-face, -face, I have to say. They, most of them prefer to come and see us face-to-face. -face. Um, so the follow-ups 
fantastic. The nurses who do the follow-up clinics, they, they, the feedback from them is quite positive. Patients also feel confident because they already know us very well. They've been coming to the clinic for a number of, uh, of months. They feel comf comf comfortable to, to report concerns uh, on the phone. We also contact the family member to get the collateral history. Um, so I, I, no, we, we, as I say, we, we now presuming some form of normality, Richard, and um, which um, is, is, is a hybrid. I, I, I can see that the, perhaps the follow-up clinics will remain, uh, uh, you know, done by phone or by uh, video, video link. I can see that the, 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 the nurses see the, the uh, see that there is a benefit for the patients not to be dragged into the clinic, having to know the family member who has to really uh, work or, 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 or stop doing what we was doing to come and accompany the person to the clinic. It's also having an impact, and believe it or not, in traffic. It's the, the amount of traffic uh, on patients attending to uh, outpatient consultations. So, yeah, I think the follow-up is likely to remain remote from changes in, in, in presentation but the new the new referrals would be we will give the person the choice and based on on on, on the capacity if the person doesn't have capacity to consent then we will obviously uh, consider more a home visit uh, a best interest decision and and if the best interest decision is that needs to be assessed then we go and do a home visit mm -hmm. i think we are a bit uh, I, I i know there are a bit uh, situation of privilege when it comes because we're a small very small community, um, and over the island is now open again. And we have flights and connections with the United Kingdom again. We have a very strict uh, testing system. Everybody arriving to the island has to be tested on arrival in the airport. And depending on which country you come from, which is the origin of your country, then if it's a green country, then you have uh, two PCRs. And if you come from a number country, you get three PCRs, and then you have to be isolated for seven days until you get your third negative PCR. And if you come from a red country where there's a high proportion of COVID, then you have to isolate for 14 days uh, before you, you, you can actually um, resume your normal uh, life. So I think uh, that has been paramount for us to be able to be in the situation where we are now, which is almost very similar to how it was pre-COVID. Again, maintaining strict uh, hygiene measures and, and social distancing. Yeah. Great. Well, that, that structured approach is going to, um, you know, uh, prevent a lot of unnecessary um, harm, which is, which is, which is critical. Um, you know, one, one thing I, I guess I've learned um, through the, 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 the guiding through shared decision-making, whether a person should come in the clinic or not in person um, in the, the patients that have been insistent on coming in, even when I kind of thought, you know, we could probably do this without, you know, I know the numbers in New York City are looking better now and that kind of thing, but um, okay, fine, come in. You know, I, I, I respect your judgment. This is why it's called shared decision-making, risks versus benefits. Um, those are the people I'm now realizing I'm, I'm, I should be concerned about. Something's going on. They're not doing well psychologically, uh, psych psychiatrically. They're they're upset. They're they're um, you know something else is going on. They're ruminating. They're you know not 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 doing well basically. Or there's something going on. And I think that's really now been the case. Um, you know we've had now multiple people in their 70s, um, even early 80s, come in where I just wasn't really like, did we really need to do it this way? Um, and every single time. Um, inclu even including the, the person that, you know, drove, you know, because didn't want to cancel the appointment or postpone it and came, 
came into my backyard sitting on a picnic table, um, you know, there was a reason, you know, there was a reason and maybe I wouldn't have realized that there was some sort of necessity or reason before that. So even in terms of risk stratification, um, when you're trying to, um, you know, it's called shared decision-making for a reason, you know, you, you give your risks and benefit, um, spiel and, and, and you find in your own personal view that the risks are greater than the benefits and the patient disagrees, I think that that should be or, or could be a somewhat of a red flag that, that something could be going on and we need to pay attention to this and, uh, and take, take something seriously during the visit. Yeah, um, so um, I guess to conclude, um, you know, um, we have learned a lot uh, when it comes to the need for a multi- uh, specialty care team. And we've learned a lot about, um, you know, having to make decisions about clinical care. But one of the things that we haven't talked about yet is uh, about research. Um, and, you know, um, how Alzheimer's uh, research has changed during the COVID-19 pandemic. And I think there's a couple of different, um, you know, Categories. So, of course, there's a randomized controlled trial. Um, I have, um, you know, a patient who, you know, went to live with her her son, and she can't do the clinical trial because it's now in a different state, and there's a quarantine now. And you know, she was getting a, a therapy, and we thought it was working. We know she got the real thing because she had a little bit of a side effect in the brain, some on the brain MRI, and and she was doing better, or cognitively better, and she had the side effect. So course she she has to be on the real thing basically and and now she can't even go she can't even you know they should they drive how are they going to drive 24 hours how are, so so participating in clinical research studies is, is tricky um you know holly you're you're involved uh, very closely with a not a, a randomized clinical trial but a, a longitudinal study and you know longitudinal studies have very specific criteria every 18 months you need to get a, a scan every this every that so I guess the take-home point um, with this is, Holly, what, what have you learned? Um, you know, how, is, how has it been through your uh, work with the clinical research studies you've been, um, you've been working with? And, and what, what's it been like for patients? And what, what do you think it's going to be like for the research down the line? Yeah, I, I mean, basically it came to an abrupt stop, right? So yeah. it's slowly picking back up. Um, you know, we just had to adjust. We're, we've moved a lot of our assessments to um, virtual. So we do neurocock testing virtually. Um, even the neuro visits with a neurologist are virtual now. Um, you know, hopefully, because research wasn't, you know, it wasn't considered like priority at this point. Um, it's becoming more and more, but hopefully soon we can start bringing patients in and we can do those assessments in person. Um, Cause I, I still think that that's important, especially for research, you want everything to kind of, you know, um, be consistent. So I, I think that doing what we have virtually has been good. At least we're doing something and keeping the study, you know, going as much as we can, but it has been super challenging. Yeah, I think I think um, the other challenging part will come later when we have to manage the data gaps and you know missing data and delayed data and how do we uh, what are the what do the statisticians have to do what do the research papers have to say in terms of in the limitations I think we're going to see a lot of limitation sections talk about the COVID nineteen pandemic and, and and the challenges there um, Juan any concluding thoughts about research in Alzheimer's disease and and, and when when you think um, we're going to rebound from from these challenges. Yeah, as I say at the beginning, I mean, it's, it's, COVID has changed the complete landscape from, from diagnosis 
to end of life, including research. I mean, as Holly say, all the observational uh, clinical uh, studies were canceled. Um, some of the therapeutic studies were uh, maintained by using, you know, changing the protocols, uh, using remote uh, assessments, uh, spacing out the, the actual reviews. Um, we, we here we can see all patients have to go richer to either Southampton or London for clinical trials, for therapeutic clinical trials, which requires also the logistics of flying. I mean, flights just recently, uh, the airport has recently been reopened. And um, again, this is now resetting again. Those uh, centers are uh, reopening and they, they reviewing their uh, protocols. So hopefully, soon those patients will be able to continue or re resume those uh, clinical tests. But I fully agree with you. How we are going to readjust the data? How are we going to be able, Richard, to actually make sense of that data, that gap where the data is missing? And, and that is going to be challenging, isn't it? How are we going to interpret that data? It's going to be really, really uh, uh, challenging. I also uh, have a few patients who, in the interim, they have changed their mind. They, 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 they now they are having second thoughts whether actually mm -hmm. is uh, is the right thing to do, whether to restart uh, the, the clinical trial. So that again, that requires some some conversation um, uh, with them, uh, and I, I, I'm sure they will not be uh, the the only case. They will be similar cases um, uh, around. Yeah, so I agree. Yeah, yeah, and it's you know between delaying recruitment, making the outcomes more challenging to interpret, and you know I, I have the same thing. I have a, a youngish patient who is just gonna just qualify, barely qualified in terms of age, and wanted to get him on a treatment as soon as possible. But the clinical trial was kind of a you know a trip; they'd have to drive a fair amount, and it's, it's every other week. That whole decision tree is totally different when you're driving and you know, navigating and traveling and spending four to eight hours at a site visit, you know, what it, getting the infusions um, during, during the pandemic, just the risk and, and the reward is, is, is a lot more tricky, especially if someone may be on a placebo. So, um, well, I, I guess I, we're out of time, but um, Holly and Juan, just thank you um, so much. I think we've given a, a really good general overview. Um, <laughs> excuse me. I, I think we've given a really good general overview and um, you know, I think um, we really need, um, Patients, caregivers, healthcare providers of, of all specialties to be able to communicate, chime in, and, and really come to the best uh, possible uh, shared decision, uh, because that's that's really you know probably where that where we, we need to be for most optimal care. So thanks so much uh, again for this uh, con uh, listening to this continuing education program, uh, and uh, we hope you uh, learned a lot. Thanks so much again, Holly and Juan. Thanks. thanks.